What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. It was a teenage wedding and the old folks wished him well. That's Uma Thurman and John Travolta doing the twist at Jackrabbit Slims in Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. Now, Adam, I want to share a top five dance scenes in non-dance movies. I want to win. I want that trophy. So pick good. You got it, kitty cat. We promise we'll make a few mainstream choices and what will otherwise be an art house heavy show. We'll discuss Alps, the new Greek film from the director of the film spotting Golden Brick winner Dogtooth, and conclude our contemporary Iranian cinema marathon with Offside. Those aren't really Golden Globe lineup films, are they? No. We're not talking about popular stuff here. Well, all that and more ahead on Film Spotting. Film Spotting is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash filmspotting. Hey, you, Film Spotting listeners. You know when you see a new movie and it feels like those times you'd fall in love with movies as a kid? What about a new song or a new book or a TV show? There's so much new stuff out there that it's getting harder and harder to find that new favorite thing. I'm Jesse Thorne. My show Bullseye points to the good stuff in culture, the kind of stuff that will change your life. I talk in-depth with comedians like Louis C.K., actors and actresses like Lisa Kudrow, and filmmakers from Judd Apatow to Werner Herzog. Plus, every week I talk to critics from the A.V. Club, Boing Boing, all over. They come on the show to tell you about their favorite new stuff. It's Bullseye with me, Jesse Thorne. Subscribe for free in iTunes or find it online every week at MaximumFun.org. You're listening to Film Spotting. Our Pulp Fiction Memorial Top 5 Dance Scenes in non-dance movies is coming up later in the show, along with Massacre Theater and our Iranian Cinema Marathon finale, Offside. But first, Adam and I fight over who gets to be Monta Rosa and who gets to be Mont Blanc for our review of Alps, the new film from the director of Dogtooth. A nurse, a paramedic, a gymnast, and her coach have formed a service for hire. They stand in for dead people by appointment, hired by the relatives, friends, or colleagues of the deceased. That just might be the most provocative two-sentence plot description for a film ever. What kind of person would hire someone to portray their dead lover, spouse, sibling, or friend and engage them in reenactments of past shared experiences? Better yet, what kind of person would prostitute themselves in such a creepy and vulnerable way, assuming the habits, mannerisms, and dress of a departed loved one? Before you write it off as complete absurdity, consider Steven Soderbergh's 2009 film about a high-class call girl named Christine who indulges her clients in more than just sex. They get the girlfriend experience. Kissing, hugging, talking, maybe some cuddling, a nice meal together. And this isn't just a cinematic conceit. The girlfriend experience is a common service offered by some female sex workers, predominantly, Josh, I imagine, in major cities. I didn't do a lot of research here for this setup. very, very careful. I tried huh? to avoid doing too many... Google searches. But there's another interesting connection between Alps and the girlfriend experience as well. Many of Christine's clients work on Wall Street and dwell on the current U.S. financial crisis, among other aspects that ground Soderbergh's experiment, just as the characters in Alps are making an extra buck while mired in Greece's own economic disaster. 
For his part, Alps director Yorgos Lanthimos has downplayed any potential metaphoric meaning. And Josh, last time I checked, you don't have a degree in international finance. You're not reading The Economist <laughs> regularly. So I don't want to pursue this line any further except to ask you whether the enigmatic Alps aroused any tangible, real-world concerns for you. Or do all of its ideas exist purely in an ethereal plane? And does that even matter? Do you personally place more value on one over the other? Well, you're right about that degree in economics. It does not exist. As a matter of fact, I'm not even allowed to touch the checkbook. So I didn't really find any repercussions. I guess there could be something there in the sense that these are people in denial that death has come and that loved ones have been taken away. Maybe it's supposed to echo the denial of people who don't want to face this austerity that's coming down upon them. Um, I'm sure that a very well-researched paper could be written about the economic resonance of Alps, and maybe that's what you're going to offer me. Well, I would just say, of course, when I mention real-world tangible problems, they don't have to be economic in nature necessarily. No, that's that's probably true. But when you, when you brought up uh, Greece and so forth, that's that's kind of what came to mind. And I thought about, you know, because this is taking place in such a hermetic universe and a, a weirdly sealed, almost alternative universe, is it supposed to be a parallel for something that actually is taking place in life? But I didn't really find it to, to have those sorts of echoes. It was so sealed, so surreal, and of its own devising, I guess. I, I, I can't imagine another movie like this taking on this subject matter. The only way I could see it working, and it struck me that this could be a really sentimental type film, too. When you described it as being creepy, you're right. And the way your opening described it, it just sounds ridiculous. But in the hands of, say, a Hollywood sentimentalist, you could go really teary with this you could. and maybe make it work. It would probably be a pretty awful film. Yeah, it could be really so, maudlin, though. You're right. Yeah, and, and I think we're at the opposite extreme here with Yorgos Lanthimos. I mean, I've seen Dogtooth. That's the only film of his I have seen. But it's very much similar in that it's cold, it's cerebral, it's sadistic in a lot of ways. Stanley Kubrick came to mind, the sort of cool touch that he had to his films. And also David Cronenberg, who we talked about last week, again, bringing up the issue of economics with Cosmopolis. Those two filmmakers I could kind of feel in the background of this film, which is really a cold, cold movie. Now, I liked that better in Dogtooth than I did here. The coldness of Alps kept me at a remove. Though I did appreciate the film overall, I wasn't quite as enthusiastic as I was with Dogtooth because I just couldn't get past that coldness here. I'm not as enthusiastic about this film as I was Dogtooth either, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that and do a little compare and contrast. You can't help but do that because Dogtooth was such a striking film. But before we get sidetracked by that, I have to admit that it really took me until the very end of this film and the closing scene to really appreciate what Lanthimos was doing, or at least what I think maybe he was doing. And I won't spoil it, of course. I think I can dance around this and just say that the end mirrors the beginning in such a way that the performer, the observer in the scene, and we, the audience, are participating in the exact same spectacle we saw previously with one contextual change. In this case, it's the music. The music in the end scene is completely different. And that lone difference dramatically alters everything about the experience each participant has with the performance, so much so that the performance itself is almost impossible to reconcile with the one before. It seems completely different, but it's really not. 
it's the same performance. And it made me think a lot about certified copy. The Kiristami film from last year that we loved here on the show and talked about a lot, that was in my mind a lot as I watched this film because I figured Lanthimos was playing at something similar to Kiarostami in terms of the notion that a fake can be just as good, just as valuable as the original thing. And here we've got these fakes, these substitutes standing in for the original person. Can the new daughter really be the old daughter? No, of course not. And that's not what they try to show us. But it's not about replicating the original here in this film. It's not about matching it. Lanthimos seems to be exploring the significance of context, how even if some of the details of the fake don't match the original, it could still be powerful and revelatory for the people involved. I'm probably not articulating this as clearly as I'd like, but I had that aha moment at the end of this film that made everything click into place, where it occurred to me that maybe the people we're seeing on screen, the main characters in the story, we're never going to see these exact people out there in the real world doing these exact same things. But are there people out there dealing with grief, dealing with despair in their own lives in similar ways to the characters in this film, especially through the construction of personal narratives? Yes, I think very much so. And I think that's what he's getting at. You're describing the more emotional film, the Hollywood version almost, that mm. this could have been when you no, talk about the I think that's more conceptual than emotional. But grief is a major part of this film and how characters deal with it. I've got to say, I felt this film through grief out the window very early oh. on. And it became more a movie about power, exerting that's power. That's a major part of it. And that's where the sadism comes in. And especially the people who hire this group, the Alps, they don't seem to be bringing them in for emotional reasons. Maybe at the start they are. They do feel like this will be some form of therapy. But as the relationships in each case progress, it becomes a form of exerting power. And what I found it to be less as some sort of echo of the grief we feel and how we work through that is the way we treat others that we're in a relationship with as actors quite often. Now, we're not going to become so literal and tell them what to wear or, as happens here, the lines that they're going to say. Right. But I did find it interesting to watch these relationships develop and echo how we have expectations of the people we're in relationships with. And when they go off script, we can be cruel. Mm -hmm. So that was one thing that did echo for me much more than grief. I, I really did not find any sort of emotional connection here for me to enter in the film or any element of it being about grief that was revealing to me. You're listening to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. We're talking about the new film Alps from the director of the much discussed, especially here on Film Spotting film from 2010, Dogtooth. I think it's interesting because you're absolutely right that even more so than grief, this becomes a movie about power. Initially, when you said that, I was only thinking about the leader of Alps, who is very much a figure like the father figure in Dogtooth, who runs his family, runs his group with an iron fist. And there are some sadistic acts that are really hard to watch, and they're done in a very deadpan, matter-of-fact way, which kind of describes the entire film. And you're right that once you get into those situations with the substitutes and the people who have hired them, that it really becomes about a power dynamic. It becomes much more about them being able to control those people. And whether that's something where they didn't have that control in their actual lives with these actual people, and now they get to exert it, or that's just the way they're manifesting their grief, it's hard to say. He doesn't give us any answers there. So you're definitely on to something with the power dynamic. I think that's also just a way that Lanthimos grounds these films in a type of real world where you have this patriarchal figure kind of stomping his authority on other people. I think that makes sense. But for me, there was something going on here in terms of grief, and I think it largely has to do with the 
main character, sort of the main character, we see her more than any other. Angeliki Papulia is the actress. She's also the oldest daughter in the film Dogtooth. And what really is interesting there is that I did have to get over some preconceptions I had about this film just based on what little I knew about it from the description and how I was making these associations with certified copy and playing certain roles and the fake versus the original. As I noted, I expected these characters to try to become the dead person, to impersonate them, to almost trick the relative into believing it's really them. But each person who hires them has different ideas about what the substitute should do and asks them to do different things. And often it's just the mundane moments we all take for granted, the trivial conversations. There's actually a really fascinating scene with a boy where the main character I spoke of is reenacting a moment for the parents. It's either a reenactment of a scene in her bedroom where she's fooling around with a boy and the parents walk in. Either this really happened and they want to relive it again for some reason or it's an experience they'll never have. And so they're acting it out because they lost their daughter. They won't know what this is like to have that moment with their daughter. So what really appealed to me here is seeing how the people, not the substitutes, even though they're pretty fascinating too, but the people who hire the substitutes, how they manifest their grief in terms of asking these people to reenact those trivial moments, the mundane conversations from the lives you had with that person, or sometimes it's even moments of anger or frustration or jealousy. It's not a greatest hits tape of your best moments together. Yeah, these aren't all happy moments. That was very interesting that Mm -hmm. these are the ones they choose. And again, whether or not that's part of their grieving process, or is it a way for them to exert a level of control over a scene that they didn't have control of at the time? Yeah. So again, that's where I saw the idea of power coming into play. And that being you can't the separate real, it. And right. I think and I think the reason that jumped out to me, too, is because it's very much what Dogtooth is about. And it matches the aesthetic that Lanthimos seems to be most comfortable working in is this. He's almost like he's performing a scientific social experiment with these films. Mm-hmm. And I think in Dogtooth, because we were set in this single house on this property, we couldn't get out of it. It made more sense to be part of the experiment here in Alps. We're in the real world, supposedly. And so we're removed a little bit. So that distance from it, I felt more like I was kind of in a lab, kind of not. I couldn't quite get my bearing in terms of having any sort of attachment, even to the main character, the nurse played by Papulia. She's very good here and brings a lot of humanity to what is a difficult role because you don't really know why is she agreed to be part of this group? Why is she performing in these scenes? And then the main narrative is driven by her decision to take a side job without the leader of the group's permission. Mm -hmm. And so we don't know why she's decided to do that. So it's a very vague motivation. Well, I think we come to know why she does it, and that's really interesting. But throughout, we don't. This is another key of Lanthimos is the information he gives you is very little. It is. And it's drawn out way further into the movie than most filmmakers would do. So you've got to stick with it and be willing yes. to find out what in the world is going on here. So that's those are all points of remove where you're left outside of the film a little bit and left me a little cold compared to how I was with Dogtooth. Yeah, I think it does leave you a little bit cold, but I think this is a film that the more you dwell on it, this certainly happened with me, the more I thought about, the more I pieced together that end scene, for example, and saw how it played into the overall film, it started to really work for me. I started to really appreciate it. Now, as I said, like you, I didn't appreciate it quite as much as Dogtooth. I wanted to try to avoid the comparison too much to Dogtooth because I just don't think 
it's that fair, even though the comparison could be fruitful. I'm not sure it's fair to our listeners who haven't seen Dogtooth. It's also maybe not fair to Lanthimos, who has made a separate, individual, unique piece of art with all the similarities. I was going to say, but how separate is it? it stands on its own, completely separate of Dogtooth, and deserves to be taken that way. They do also share a screenwriter for whatever it's worth, Ephthemus Philippou. But Lanthimos himself, I saw an interview with him, a quick four or five questions, where he noted the primary difference between two films even though, yes, there are a lot of similarities in terms of the power dynamic, some of the sadism, the play acting, reality versus fantasy is a major part of his films, including, from what I've read, his first film, Kaneta, which isn't available on Netflix, and I haven't been able to get my hands on it. But he says that one is about characters escaping from fantasy. That's very clearly Dogtooth. And this movie, Alps, is about characters fleeing toward fantasy. And that is an interesting difference that we see in this film, because not only is it about why would these people, these grieving people, hire these surrogates, It is that question of why these surrogates would want to participate in this. And what we come to see from that main character and all the characters is that some hole in their own lives is being filled by joining these families. They're so low. They're filled with so much despair themselves that they actually need desperately to be part of this group, which allows them to feel something they clearly aren't getting from the rest of their lives. I thought that was fascinating. What you're saying about the power dynamic That's also what makes this movie grounded in the real world, as abstract as it is. That's one of those comments, I think, on everyday life that you can extract from this film, even if, as I said, our everyday experiences don't necessarily match up exactly with this film. But it's true that I had that cold feeling when I initially got done with this movie as well, because it seemed to me that the people who have been hurt from losing someone, the people who are grieving, they're so deadpan and detached that I was constantly looking for some way to feel anything for them, to feel for these characters. And Dogtooth had a similar intellectual detachment, but the emotions of that film were so intense. They were so burning hot that it reminded me of the sun outside in that film, the way he shoots the outside world. So there was an overall intensity that really pierced my brain in a way with Dogtooth that Alps didn't. And it partly has to do with the look, Josh. You touched on this, I think, in terms of the way this film is shot. Dogtooth was this hyper sense of realism that literally was intense to see. Very bright, vivid colors. Gave you a sense that this world they're in may be the real world, but is really a complete fantasy. Alps is much more dreary, and there are often large swaths of the frame that are completely out of focus, which I don't recall seeing in Dogtooth. And there are long takes here in this movie that capture life in a very deadpan, matter-of-fact sort of way, even as the events on screen couldn't be more outside the realm of the everyday. So I love that juxtaposition here in this film. It's very drab, and I even wonder if Lanthimos doesn't have someone who seeks out drab bedrooms, because in both films now he has found such horribly dull bedrooms for a lot of the action to take place in. Dogtooth had the pool, it had the bright sun, Mm -hmm. so it had some other other elements to play with, and this certainly does not have that. But I did find almost every frame to be gripping in a different way. Lanthimos is spending a lot of time here obscuring the faces of his characters. Mm -hmm. We eventually see everyone, but not when we expect to or often when we want to. Many of the scenes, the main person in it, we see from behind. And we're watching them watch something else. And just the way he frames those, I found pretty captivating. So I think there is a lot going on here visually, even though overall it does have a drab aesthetic. But I want to go back to what you were talking about in terms of Lanthimos's reasons for how these two films are different. I think 
this is where critics do have to come in and instead of applying what a director says about their films, but stepping back and saying, okay, that's what they were going for. What do the films say? The films say exactly what he said, Josh. They're two very different films in that big theme. There's no doubt that the main character in Dogtooth is fleeing her fantasy world. And in this film, the main character is trying to go back into a fake world. Yeah, That's what that she wants, sense. is to escape the real world. Sense. I'm not saying so I like that he's playing with the same theme, but in a completely different way. I'm not saying he's pulling something out of the sky and giving it to us. Clearly, he was intent on working out those themes, and they're there. Mm -hmm. But I do find overall, and the reason this is the lesser film, is because it's hitting predominantly the same sort of notes about this removed clinical scientific approach to humanity and human relationships, putting people in these experiments and seeing what will happen and just looking at it coldly and from a distance. In Dogtooth, I found that that worked and was very revealing. In Alps, there are a couple of interesting things about it, but overall, I don't see the same approach working quite as successfully. Hmm. I don't know. I guess that just doesn't really matter to me. I'm trying to take both films separately. Dogtooth is the film I'd prefer to revisit first and probably multiple times, but that doesn't mean that this movie doesn't, as I said, really stand on its own and I think warrant more consideration maybe than you're giving it. I guess it's just hard for me to use a word like a lesser film. I'm trying to give him some credit for working within a style and we praise filmmakers like this all the time. Wes Anderson keeps making Wes Anderson movies, yep. but we find things that stand out to us, that appeal to us, new nuggets of truth that they're exploring. And this film has enough new nuggets of truth, new things that he's wrestling with in interesting ways to make it not just a follow-up to Dogtooth that we should compare to that film, but we need to take this one very seriously on its own. Maybe style isn't the right word to use or even technique or even aesthetic. Maybe worldview is what I'm trying to get at. When you feel a film has a way of looking at people mm -hmm. and looking at relationships, situations in the world, I feel like the worldview is consistent among the two films. That's why I and feel that's like a good it's thing. more fair to compare the two. And I guess what I'm getting at is Alps, again, overall, which I liked and think is a movie well worth seeing, uses that worldview in a less interesting way. Okay. Well, we'll have to agree to disagree on that. Alps starts a run this weekend in Chicago at the Gene Siskel Film Center and I'm sure is playing in other select cities around the country. If you get a chance to see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 206-203-2463, or find us on Twitter at filmspotting and facebook.com slash filmspotting. Adam and I were all set to perform Massacre Theater via interpretive dance in keeping with our top five theme this week. But then Adam sprained an ankle in rehearsals. It happens. You feeling better? A little bit. Okay, good. A regular Massacre Theater is next then, plus the final film in our Iranian cinema marathon. Stay with us.
another week here on Film Spotting, where we are very grateful to have Audible.com support. They're the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment, providing digital versions of tens of thousands of audiobooks for download to your computer, iPhone, Android phone, BlackBerry, and iPod. You can listen whenever and wherever you want, just like the podcast you're listening to right now. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from. Every genre, Audible has it covered. We've got two titles that you might be so inclined to choose if you go to audiblepodcast.com slash filmspotting. The first comes from a listener, Christopher in Lexington, Kentucky. While on the whole, I am still generally an advocate of actually reading books, I can recommend without any reservation the readings of various P.G. Wodehouse novels, especially those by Jonathan Cecil. If you are not familiar with Wodehouse's work, you should be. He is the originator of the Jeeves and Wooster stories that people may know from the British TV show with Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry. These novels are absolute delights. Light, fun, funny, complete fun. An excellent relief from the stresses of the day. By the way, the next time we review a really good comedy on the show, my whole review is just going to be light, fun, funny, complete fun. That covers it. I love it. It really does cover everything. You also brought a recommendation to the table this week, Josh. It is. Well, I'm on page 600 of about 800-some of Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. And I'm hitting a wall. Really? I confess I'm hitting a wall. I may need Audible to rescue me. So I checked out what's available there, and they actually have about 15 different options if you're interested. Some are the whole novel. Some are abridged versions. One is even a dramatized version narrated by Ingrid Bergman and Gregory Peck. For a free audiobook of your choice, maybe you want to hear Gregory Peck and Ingrid Bergman do Tolstoy, or maybe you want to go with something less highbrow, you can get it now by going to audiblepodcast.com slash filmspotting. Maybe you want to go with something a little less highbrow. Try not to be as pretentious as Josh. That's oh, fine. Please. Just go to audiblepodcast.com slash filmspotting. I met a girl. She's a cashier. No way. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, you know, what's her name? White trash name. Guess. Mandy. Nope. Marilyn. Nope. Brittany. Nope. Tiffany. Nope. Candace. All I'm right, speed round. Serious. I'm going to rattle off some names when I hit you, it. Buzz it, okay? I will tell you. You got me? Yeah. All right, Brandy, Heather, Channing, Brianna, Amber, Sabrina, Melody, Dakota, Sierra, Bambi, Crystal, Samantha, Autumn, Ruby, Taylor, Tara, Tammy, Lauren, Shelley, Shit. Welcome back Courtney, to Film Misty, Spotting Jenny, with Adam and Josh. That's a scene from the movie Ted, Seth MacFarlane's comedy starring Mark Wahlberg. From this past summer, it's going to set up our poll question a little bit later in this segment. Looking back on the surprises of the summer, I think... Ted qualifies as somewhat of a surprise for me, Josh, in terms of just how funny I found it. And that scene in particular, the white trash name scene, was singled out during our review of Ted. Maybe the single funniest scene of the summer. Yeah, that's probably the highlight of the film for sure. Well, speaking of funny, let's get to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene badly from a famous screenplay and you get a chance at winning a prize. Last week, Josh and I massacred this scene. At least once in his life, every man is a genius. And I'll tell you something, Ruth. It's going to be more than once in your life for you. It's going to be a number of times because you've got it. From what I've heard here, yeah, you've got it. And you're stuck with it. And I don't care if you wanted to get rid of it. You couldn't. It's always going to be there. Now, I know there's no formula for it. I just don't know how you do it. And I'm not curious, mind you, because I want to use the material. I want you to understand that. I'm just curious because I don't know how you do it. I really have to ask you that. How do you, how do, you do it? I think it's that I look at my whole life and I, I see the awful, terrible things in my life and turn it into something funny. I, I, it just happens. 
That's Jerry Lewis as Jerry Langford and Robert De Niro as Rupert Pupkin from 1983's The King of Comedy, directed by Martin Scorsese, written by Paul B. Zimmerman. The tie-in was the interview Adam did with Mike Berbiglia about his new film, Sleepwalk With Me. Berbiglia is a stand-up comic himself and also plays an aspiring comic in the picture. If you want to hear that interview or any part of last week's show, it's available via iTunes or at filmspotting.net. Unfortunately, I'm looking at the film spotting hat this week, Josh, and it tells me that either we were really bad with our acting... I More think, than usual. Yeah, I think that's the case. Maybe we picked a tough scene, but I really thought that we picked a pretty representative scene, a memorable scene from The King of Comedy. That lack of a brimming hat tells me that maybe a lot of people need to check out that Martin Scorsese film because it's a great one. There wasn't an obvious tie-in either. I mean, it wasn't tied into a review mm-hmm. or the top five, so maybe threw a few people maybe off that way. Maybe threw a few people off, but definitely a film worth seeing if you haven't caught up with The King of Comedy. Why don't you reach into that hat and pick out this week's winner? The winner would be Anthony Morfitt from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Cedar Rapids, the home of Quaker Oats, Eastern Iowa, my old stomping grounds. Go Hawks. Congratulations, Anthony. Email feedback at filmspotting.net. We'll set you up with your prize. It's a scene, man. Memorize it. <laughs> what? Look, man, undercover cops got to be ball and random, right? To do this job, you got to be a great actor. You got to be naturalistic. You got to be naturalistic as hell. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, presented by Fandor.com, the premier location to discover, explore, and share great independent foreign and classic cinema. Film Spotting listeners receive the first 30 days free. Support Film Spotting and sign up now at Fandor.com slash Film Spotting. Fandor, essential films instantly. Well, we don't need to say it, but this scene does tie in directly with our top five this week, dance scenes. We have slightly altered the text. You probably won't even notice And I'm sure there are people out there who have the scene memorized, Josh, because it's a fairly famous one. But we've slightly changed it just to avoid mentioning the names, make it a little bit tougher here. Josh, I'm going to start it off, so you're going to give me the action. Are you ready? I am. Are you? No. Well, then, here we go. And action. You know, at parties, everybody is supposed to be very happy. Perhaps you dislike them as much as I do. Still, as parties go, I think it might have been worse. Do you? Very nearly was a great deal worse. Oh, We were, it appears, to be treated to a little dancing exhibition, but now I understand we are to be spared that horror. I am that horror. It's a bit late for apologies, isn't it? Yes, a little late, I think. Well, say, I'm sorry. I'm terribly sorry. But you're not sorry I didn't dance, are you? May I ask why? Because, my dear, when I accept an invitation to a party, I do not expect to find myself at an audition. Yes, you're quite right. Why do you want to dance? Why do you want to live? Well, I don't know exactly why, but I must. That's my answer, too. And scene. If you know what film we just horribly massacred, (laughs) email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Tuesday, September 11th. I I just have to know, were you doing an accent there or not? It sounded much better when I rehearsed it (laughs) by myself today. So yes or no? No. Okay. No, I had a much better accent planned. <laughs> okay. I had an accent planned. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I was checking. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on next week's show. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. Once a final burden brother lies dead in the dust, I agree to give you your freedom. And I'll take you to rescue your wife. Where are we going? Gentlemen, you had my curiosity, but now you have my attention. 
Well, clearly the new Quentin Tarantino film, Django Unchained, there starring Leonardo DiCaprio, has our interest and our attention, as well as the attention of film spotting listeners. We gave you a very challenging poll question last week as we shared our top five most anticipated fall movies, and we narrowed it down to the two at the top of our list, the new Tarantino film, Django Unchained, or The Master. We gave you this scenario. You've only got one ticket, and you can only pick one of those two fall movies. You'll never get to see the other. Make the choice now. Josh, how did our listeners choose? Pretty close. Django Unchained received 44%, which means the master got 56%. Is this a shift? I feel like this might be a shift from Tarantino as the idolized auteur, American auteur of film spotting to Paul Thomas Anderson. Maybe so. Maybe so. Or maybe it's just this film. Maybe something Mm. about the master and its subject matter. Yeah, that could be. Seymour Hoffman appeals to people more than what Tarantino seems to be up to with Django Unchained. I'm not sure. I did think the master would win. I thought it might be a little bit closer than it was. Not that 56-44 isn't pretty tight, but I thought it would be a little bit closer to one of our great death matches at 50-50. That said, we got some great comments in the poll. Chris said, based on the trailers, I would say Django, but because of Philip Seymour Hoffman, I'm going to go with the master. There you go. It's a punch in the gut to not see either one, though. A.S. wrote in, Django without a doubt. I love P.T. Anderson, and while I'm sure The Master will be very good, I haven't seen any trailers or clips released from the film that scream awesome. While P.T. let me down with Punch Drunk Love... Oh, no. I know. We can disregard everything A.S. has to say here. Anyways, uh, it was really just Sandler that ruined it. Oh, this is getting worse. Uh, QT has never let me down once, so I have no reason to believe that Django Unchained will be anything other than another Tarantino masterpiece. December 25th, can't get here soon enough. Max O'Connell goes the other way. Paul Thomas Anderson is my favorite director working today, so it's really no contest. Much as I respect and love Tarantino's films, There Will Be Blood is the best film of the past decade. Magnolia is my favorite movie of all time. Punch Drunk Love and Boogie Nights are also excellent, and quite frankly, Heart 8 slash Sydney is unfairly overlooked. At the rate PTA is going, I'd be pretty surprised if The Master isn't at least in my top five at the end of the year. One more from Peter, who wrote, I've already seen most of the Corbucci and Leone films that Tarantino is cribbing, so I'll go with The Master. I'd choose a third, Killing Them Softly. The Andrew Dominic film. My pick, His follow-up to the assassination of Jesse James. He'd like to go there. Unfortunately, Peter, that wasn't an option. Thanks to everyone who voted in that poll question. We were looking ahead to fall. Now with this week's poll question, we're going to look back a little bit. With the end of summer being here, we're curious, what was your biggest cinematic surprise? we got to thank our producer, Sam Van Halgren, for these great options here. Josh, read them off. The Avengers was better than The Dark Knight Rises. Prometheus was worse than Aliens 3 or 4. Prometheus was as good as Alien or Aliens. A talking teddy bear was the funniest character. Channing Tatum can act. Matthew McConaughey can act. Robert Pattinson can act. All right, well... I think I can guess. We should be able to guess for each other based on the summer of talking about movies here on the show and our reviews. We should know where the other person is going. So I'm going to predict for you, Josh. Do you know where you would vote in this poll? Yes. You do. I think I just made my choice, but now I'm trying to outwit you, so I may be changing it. I'm predicting you're voting Prometheus was worse than Aliens 3 or 4. Yeah, you got that. I think that was your biggest surprise. What about me? You're really in love with Prometheus, so I'm thinking it's Prometheus was as good as Alien or Aliens. Yeah, but that's crazy. It's not as good as Alien or Aliens. Belongs in the same universe. No, belongs in the same universe, but not quite as good. So as I look through the options, the Avengers wasn't better than The Dark Knight Rises. Prometheus wasn't worse or better than those options. A talking teddy bear was the funniest character. That was a little bit of a surprise. I'm keeping that in the running. Channing Tatum can act. That's Magic Mike. I already thought Channing Tatum can act. Not a huge surprise. Matthew McConaughey can act. I'm on record as saying that 
I think he has a standout performance in Killer Joe. He's also very good in Magic Mike, but that's not a huge surprise for me. I've loved him in other roles. So for me, it comes down to the talking teddy bear or Robert Pattinson. Mm -hmm. His acting chops that he shows off in David Cronenberg's Cosmopolis discussed last week on the show. And picking between those two, it's Robert Pattinson. Is it really? Yeah, because... That's so biased. You've never even seen any of the well, Twilight that's, that's films. that's true. So it's just his association with Twilight. He yeah. stinks of Twilight I was so afraid, much. I was afraid you might call me out on this. I was hoping you might do it a little bit more <laughs> no, diplomatically. No chance of that. Josh, because you're right, I have nothing to base it on, but maybe that's just it. I didn't know anything about him as an actor, so it was a surprise to see him be that good. And I think he is that good as the lead in Cosmopolis. It's not a huge surprise to me that... The guy who made Family Guy made a pretty funny movie. So mm -hmm. I'm right, going Robert Pattinson. We want to know what you think. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. And there's a very good chance this poll question is going to help set up next week's show. We're still debating what our main topic is going to be. But one of the options that we're kicking around I think could be fun would be an end of summer roundup where mm -hmm. we look at some of the movies, maybe two or three or four Maybe not even the same movies. We could see different films that we overlooked from this past summer. So you're talking about Premium Rush might factor in, yep. Lawless, just some of those films that are probably worth a little bit of discussion, but we didn't have time for. We're going to maybe make time for them next week on the show. So again, not a lock, but could definitely happen next week. Two promotional notes I want to share before we move on, Josh. Do this every couple of weeks here. Want to promote Film Spotting SVU streaming video unit, our sister podcast. I love it when they call us Film Spotting Original Recipe. Mm -hmm. I kind of like that. <laughs> you could subscribe to SVU in iTunes, or all the info you need is at filmspottingsvu.com. This is Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore. They do great work. Every two weeks, a new show comes out. On their most recent show, they go through the sight and sound list a little bit, of course, as we did here on the show. They pick out some of their favorite movies that were on that larger sight and sound list that are available to see via streaming. They also discuss their listener's choice movie, Ingmar Bergman's Persona. And I love some of their segments. One of the bits they typically end with, they have two expiring titles, right. two movies they say are worth seeing but are going to leave streaming very soon. And Matt actually has this week a title that came up in a lot of lists I saw online for our top five theme this week, Great Dance Scenes, he mentions as an expiring title, White Knights, ah. Mikhail Baryshnikov, Gregory Hines in that film from the Wonder 80s. if that'll be on one of our lists. Not going to be on my list, but those two dancers together are pretty phenomenal. Again, we encourage you to visit their show at filmspottingsvu.com. We're also giving away a Blu-ray copy of Starship Troopers Invasion. I know there are a lot of Starship Troopers fans out there, and this is the fourth in the Starship Troopers series. It's an animated film that just came out on DVD last week. We've got the DVD and a poster to give away to one winner. All you got to do to win, email feedback at filmspotting.net with your favorite Starship Troopers line of dialogue. Oh, how to choose. There are some doozies. <laughs> there are some humdingers in that script. Send us your pick. Feedback at filmspotting.net. We'll announce the winner next week on the show. Our contemporary Iranian cinema marathon wraps up with Offside from writer-director Jafar Panahi. Again, these marathons are opportunities for us to revisit genres, periods in film history, or specific directors and dig a bit more deeply into them. Previously in this marathon, we discussed Panahi's The Mirror, which had sly references to Iran's patriarchal society along its story's edges. Not so with Offside from 2006. Here the critique of this patriarchy is front and center. Set during a critical soccer match between Iran and Bahrain, and partly filmed at the stadium during that game, 
Offside follows a group of women who separately try to sneak into the stadium disguised as men, as women aren't allowed. Because this follows a number of different women, as well as the various soldiers who try to stop and detain them, Offside is very much an ensemble piece. There is no central figure. I'd like to start our discussion by asking a bit of a tangential question, but one I think that will help illuminate the sense of humanism Panahi brings to this tale. Was there a particular face that resonated most with you among these characters, Adam? And why do you think that person may have stood out? That's a great question. I really love that question because it does get at my favorite thing about this movie. And I'd love to come up with a more creative choice, but if I had to answer you right now, I'd probably pick Seema Mubarak Shahi as first girl. That's how she's listed in the credits, just first girl, because she's the first girl we see. It's the face we see the most. Mm -hmm. So I think we partly identify with her. She's kind of the main character in the ensemble. But again, it really is an ensemble, as we'll touch on here in a moment. Her face, though, is one of pure desperation. You get the sense looking at her that there's something more to her desire to see this game maybe beyond her team qualifying for the World Cup. And we discover later that is, in fact, the case. Whether or not the way that's handled completely pays off, we can talk about. But there's just a longing that really comes through in her face. So that one probably stands out the most for me, though there certainly are a lot of good candidates to choose from. I'm curious to get yours. But this does get at the heart of this film for me because, sure, there are a lot of movies that are ensembles and give multiple characters their time and their points of view. But this movie is really a concerto. Instead of it being three parts, though, where one instrument gets a solo, here virtually every member of the ensemble gets their solo. You think it's going to be the story of this father who's going to the game, trying to get on a bus because his daughter went to the game. and It's the first face we see. Is he's his, afraid, yeah. yes, he's afraid that if she's discovered to be a girl, pretending to be a boy, and she's not supposed to be at the stadium, that bad things could happen to her. Not just jail, but she could be badly hurt, if not killed, if they find her. So you think it might be his story with his daughter as he goes to try to get her back, but then the two main guards, they get their movements. Each one of the girls being held in this makeshift jail at the stadium, they get their movements. Even the new guy they pick up along the way gets his own moment, his movement, where the narrative shifts its focus to him and allows us a glimpse into his world. That happens with really every character in this film, and if this movie ends up being political beyond the obvious, as you touched on, showing women not being allowed to do something men do for really vapid reasons. It comes up over and over again that the main reason girls can't go to the soccer game is really because they're afraid they're going to have to witness men behaving badly. Yeah, the salty language. The salty language <laughs> could be a little bit too much for them. So obviously the film depicts that very directly, but it's also, I think, in the way it won't let any one character be the hero or villain. I do like your choice of first girl as she's identified. One thing she brings to the story early on is that sense of danger because she doesn't seem fit for this. I mean, she doesn't seem up to this task. Right. A couple of men who see her on the bus actually say, you're going to get caught. And we feel she's going to get caught too. And that's crucial because we need to feel, especially as a foreign audience who's not as familiar with the societal norms at play here, we need to feel the danger and understand how dangerous this really is. And you can see that on her face. But I'm going to actually pick, you mentioned the two guards, and for me, it was the head guard, the guy who's kind of portrayed as a country bumpkin a yeah, little bit. And he's always yelling. He's, yeah. <laughs> everyone says, stop yelling because he feels out of control. Yeah. And, and he feels the pressure of his role. He feels the pressure and it's an unfamiliar situation. Why I choose him, though, is because you see the awareness dawning in him as the film proceeds. 
why do we have these rules? What's behind them? What's the real point? Do they do any good? Even though he's the person who's supposed to be enforcing them. So there's a real dawning there that I think is crucial to what the movie is doing because this movie proceeds from fear that it starts with on the one girl's face to a point of joy, really. It doesn't, it's not a feel good piece. It doesn't leave you entirely at the end feeling, oh, things are going to be all right, right in this society. It's more realistic than that. But overall, it does move from that fear to joy. And a big part of it, again, like you mentioned, is the ensemble. The recurring theme here is camaraderie and where it bubbles up where you least expect it. So it starts early on when that girl is detained, when first girl is detained, and you feel like something terrible is going to happen mm -hmm. to her. The soldier who's escorting her takes her to this back stairway. They're all alone. And at this point, I was you know, really fearful. What is she going to suffer here? And he asked her if he could borrow her cell phone. Yeah. And it's this little touch, but all of a sudden, a normal social interaction is taking place and that changes everything because you get the sense that although the Iranian regime is forcing these rules upon society, he's down just on a the ground, person like her. Yep. And yeah. down on the ground, these people are going to interact with each other in healthy ways. Obviously, not everywhere, mm -hmm. but we get to see pockets of humanity. And really, if the movie is political, it's because Panahi is working in that way. He's not delivering a sermon about how right. terrible these rules are. Instead, he's undermining the rules by showing that when you let good people just be themselves, look how ridiculous these rules mm -hmm. are. Well, you touched on it with sports. That's why this is the theme or the main subject matter of the film. One of the things sports can do is bring us together, bring disparate people together. And I thought it was always interesting watching this movie where you want to say that this is the boys' domain. They're the only ones who can be in the stadium. They understand soccer. But then you come to get to know the girls better, and you realize that they know the game better than the men do. Right. And so he's constantly undercutting it in ways like that. But at the same time, this should be an experience, a circumstance, where these groups, men and women, old, young, whatever, should all be coming together. And they finally do at the end of the film. Mm -hmm. More or less, they have no choice to as they end up in this big traffic jam and this celebration. They are united for their country. Again, that is something sports can do. Did you think about this film, how it fit into the marathon overall? We talked about it a little bit with our last film, Fireworks Wednesday. I touched on how sometimes on just even a superficial level, you could see how, okay, if you've seen another Asghar Farhadi film, you'd know right. this was his film and so on with some of the other directors, whether, again, it was from our marathon or just other films we've seen of theirs outside the marathon. This film definitely feels like Panahi from The Mirror, the person we saw in The Mirror, my favorite film of this marathon so far, in terms of the girl on the bus, just on a basic level, also the feminist bent of it, as you touched on. But, of course, it's not as blatantly about cinema as The Mirror is or his film from this year, This Is Not a Film, but he still sneaks it in. And if I'm being honest, I didn't have nearly the same reaction to this film as I did to The Mirror or Close Up or A Moment of Innocence. But this movie did just further convince me that Panahi has to be one of our most important, vital directors today. For him, cinema is a living, breathing, organic entity. He doesn't just go to a film set, have his actors act out the dialogue on the page, shoot it, and everyone goes home. He finds ways for real life, for fantasy life to all mingle together and alter each other. You mentioned how he shot a lot of this at the stadium. The scenes at the end are from the actual celebration when Iran beat Bahrain. You do get the sense sometimes, the way the camera is moving, that people around them 
aren't necessarily sure what's going on, aren't completely in on the fact that a movie is being made. You always get the sense with Panahi as a director that he's catching life as it happens, even in a film like this that is clearly more traditional and more conventionally staged than something like The Mirror. You still get that organic, we're making a film out of the the basic ingredients of life that really strikes me about him as a director. In the context of the marathon, one thing I noticed, in addition to that, I, I, I think that's that's very true, but also is this way these movies have redefined suspense for me in a lot of ways, especially the ones that are just in domestic situations and turn those into really suspenseful sequences when we're used to Hollywood films that need action for suspense. Mm-hmm. Here I'm thinking particularly, and the mirror has all sorts of suspense with that little girl getting lost and how he amps that up. Here I'm thinking of the scene where one of the detained women is escorted to the bathroom. And this becomes this, I don't know, 10, maybe 15 minute sequence of, okay, how are they going to pull this off? Because the guard has to bring her into the stadium to the public men's bathroom. There are no, here's a fascinating thing, which makes sense, but I didn't think about it until I saw it. There are no women's bathrooms in the stadium. So how is he going to sneak her in there without the male fans finding out? How does he manage it once she's in there? Because he can't be near her. All of these, again, societal norms, he can't be near her when she's using the bathroom. And he can't let other people get near her. He can't let other people get her. He can't let her even see the graffiti on the walls. Again, back to the salty language. Mm -hmm. So all of this is built up for this intensely suspenseful scene where she finally gets into one of the stalls. And all these male fans come in and are demanding, why can't we use the bathroom? And the soldier's trying to keep them at bay. And then it suddenly turns for about two minutes into a mini horror film where everything's quiet in the bathroom and the soldier hears somebody mumbling in one of the other stalls. He had been under the impression that the whole bathroom was empty. And we go slowly to the stall and it's just, again, this redefinition of suspense and what is creating that suspense here. It's living within this sort of society. We can feel Mm -hmm. how different fears percolate and drive your behavior when you live someplace like this. Yeah, that's a great point. I mentioned that maybe an emotional payoff that happens at the end of this film didn't necessarily completely work for me. Mm -hmm. And even though we could technically spoil this movie, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who gets a chance to see it. It's not necessarily a huge plot revelation. It doesn't change what came before, but it does make you more deeply understand that first girl and her reasons for being at the game. And that felt to me like it was tacked on. Yes, It felt to me like... Panahi was going for some kind of emotional resonance. He was trying to hit a point home that otherwise the movie really wasn't interested in doing. And it didn't actually add a whole lot either. I was I was disappointed to see that little touch at the end. I'd agree with that. That's one of the few moments where this felt like one of those foreign films that a U.S. distributor would scoop up and try to sell to the malls. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so here's a movie about... Iranian women who sneak into a soccer game because they're not allowed. That just feels like this Weinstein best foreign language film winner. Mm -hmm. And there are touches like that. But then Panahi, and here's where he's such a true artist for me. There are other touches that are completely opposite where you never get in a movie like that. And the one image that I'll remember from this film, actually, even though we're talking about how it ends in joy and has all this camaraderie, is a very dispiriting one. And it's about midway through the film where one of the detained women is in the pen. They've got them all lined up in this pen. And a man walks by and recognizes her. Mm -hmm. And he chastises her for coming to the game and is really reaming her out. And what she does is she reaches down into her bag and pulls out 
one of the a chador, one of the long veils that covers her whole body. Mm-hmm. She puts it on top of herself, and it just felt so antithetical to everything the movie had been about that your heart just sinks when yeah. you see that. But that's it's a like, powerful moment. That in that oh, moment she has to powerful moment back to what society yeah. expects of her, and, and it makes us realize how we had been caught up in their story mm-hmm. and along with them and they're acting out against this society and to see her do that was just so depressing in a really artful way and she wears it through the rest of the film and i love that because it's just this reminder from panahi that this is really a fleeting experience there are probably going to be repercussions for these women when they get home yeah if not from the authorities. And there are probably going to be repercussions for these soldiers who make little choices. You had mentioned the thing about making choices. And some of their choices, though tiny, are going to have repercussions for them in sense of a chain of command, especially that lead soldier I had mentioned. I love when he reaches out of the bus as they're traveling. They're trying to move them from the stadium somewhere else while the last minutes of the game are going on. He reaches out of the bus to hold the radio antenna so that they can hear what happens in the game. So that's another example of him dawning his humanity coming through. But again, what's going to happen the next day when they're still stuck with all these rules and regulations? There, There's probably going to be something to pay for them. Well, Offside closes out our contemporary Iranian cinema marathon. If you want to hear any of our previous discussions, see how we rated the movies, you can do that. Click on Marathons when you visit filmspotting.net. Next week, we'll share our best of the marathon awards. This is how we like to close out each one of our marathons. We share our best picture though there is no suspense at all in terms of what will get my pick. Yeah, I think we best know picture. that. We'll talk about best director, best actor, best actress, and the key moment from the marathon as well, the one that really stands out for us. A lot of good options here. We need some good name ideas, though. We often take name ideas for these awards from our listeners. So back when we did Hitchcock, we did the MacGuffins. And I think when we did Bergman, we did the Svens. So <laughs> we need something that fits in. The only one that comes to mind right off the top of my head, Josh, the Metas. The Metas? Since that... we got four movies out of six, I think that we're pretty meta, at least yeah, three. that would apply. I think it would apply, but I'm looking for some better ideas to name our Iranian Cinema Marathon Awards. You can email them to us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Adam and I have 10 slots to fill on our dance cards. What movies will be named for having the best dance scenes? Non-musical edition. The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. I know you see me just like you.
Thank You Time here on Film Spotting, brought to you by the Q&A with Jeff Goldsmith. Jeff's great podcast where he interviews screenwriters, sometimes directors and actors as well. You can check it out in iTunes just by doing a search for the Q&A. And you can also get in iTunes his iPad app called Backstory, all about screenwriting, sometimes contains whole screenplays or unfinished screenplays sometimes. You can get more information about Backstory at Backstory.net. Pretty quick week here for us, Josh, in terms of thank yous and donations, but definitely want to thank a longtime, longtime supporter of the show, a guy I've actually had a chance to have dinner with out in his hometown of San Jose, California. That's Tom Clark, wisely married, a Grinnell College grad. So he's got that going for him, which is nice. Thank you, Tom, for your continued support of the show. And we also want to thank Philip Schaefer in Petaluma, California. I dropped my daughter off at college near Los Angeles this weekend and drove back to my home north of San Francisco today. I had queued up the double sight and sound episode along with this week's show and the newest SVU show. I had guessed Adam's favorite movies on Facebook two or three weeks ago, but had mostly forgotten about it. It woke me from my highway days when I heard Adam announce my name as the co-winner, having guessed eight from his top 20. It was very fun getting mentioned on the show, but I realized that I need to decline the prize and donate to you instead. These are our listeners, Josh. (laughs) They get a chance at a free prize. Instead, they give us money. No, let me give you money. Yeah. I wasn't too impressed with my 5 for 10. I thought I would be able to get at least 7. I couldn't believe you picked Blue Velvet over Mulholland Drive, even though I personally love Blue Velvet. That did catch a lot of people. Also, you do need to rewatch 2001. I was lucky enough to see it played at the Castro Theater in San Francisco last weekend, along with Melier's A Trip to the Moon. I went with a friend and his teenage sons and friends, and to my surprise, the boys were blown away by it, and they said it was their all-time favorite film. I owe you guys much more than you owe me. I've made a couple of small donations in the past, and have used the excuse of saving for and having two kids in college for not giving more. If I use the $1 a show metric... I'm way behind, so consider this part of an installment plan. Anyways, keep up the great work. I've seen and learned more about films than I could possibly mention in an email. Thanks for all of it. 2001 in a theater is something. I had the chance to see it in the Cinerama. I think it's called the Cinerama Dome in L.A. Hmm. a number of years ago, which is just this huge circular theater. It's quite an experience. I'm jealous because I said last week on the show it's one I really feel like I need to see projected theatrically to fully appreciate even though you can see a lot of what makes Kubrick so good there and that gives me a chance real quick here Josh before we close to also acknowledge something I tweeted last week where we were talking about 2001 and I went through this litany of great Stanley Kubrick movies that I would consider maybe Dr. Strangelove would have made my list instead of 2001 but then what about The Shining and Full Metal Jacket it occurred to me listening to the show myself that I didn't even mention A Clockwork Orange. You didn't. Which is disturbing, but also a great, great film. So would that be your number one, then? You still don't know. (laughs) I still don't know. Because I think I said it would be Strange Love. Yep. But I think I like A Clockwork Orange better better than than Strange Love. Hmm. What about you? I'm going to stick with 2001. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Hi, my name's Steve Coogan, and you're listening to Film Spotting. Hi, guys. Kevin Schreit from Burlington, Iowa. Um, I want you guys to know I think you guys owe us another top ten, the top ten films of all time. Um, I kept waiting for Fletch to show up, Adam, on your list, and I was really disappointed when it took Jeff Nichols to bring it up. You know, I'm all for movies about influential movies or essential movies, and that's kind of what we got, but 
how about the top 10 films of all time, your personal top 10? That's kind of what I felt this was going to be, and instead I felt like we got a director's litany of what a movie should be. I was begging for Matty Ballgame to show up and, and, and name Major League as his number one movie of all time. Is there anything wrong with just liking a movie because it's a good story, because it makes you laugh, because it's entertaining, because it's rewatchable? You know, I feel like some of the movies you listed are good art house movies, things of that nature. They're not your favorite movies. If you're going to list the top 10 films of all time, your personal top 10, give us your top 10. Talk to you later, guys. Great show. Bye. You're listening to Film Spotting with Josh Larson. I'm Adam Kempinar. Our top five dance scenes from non-musicals or dance movies is coming up a bit later in this segment. But we start with that voicemail from Kevin in Burlington, Iowa, chastising us, Josh, for how we approached our sight and sound list. This was from a couple shows ago, big two-part show, where we finally forced ourselves to actually name our top 10 films of all time. No rules, no restrictions, no pantheons, just our top 10 films ever. Does Kevin's claim have any validity with you? This is a very annoying voicemail. <laughs> First of all, Kevin's asking for a completely different list. This isn't what we set out to do. It was the top 10 greatest films of all time. It wasn't right. our favorite, the most entertaining, the ones we laughed the most at the most or would watch again. No. Now, that said, though, that's how I tried to distinguish my Me list. Too. I went back to these greatest films of all times, and I cut out the ones I had no personal attachment to. I think I described them as the ones that didn't make me jump off the couch in love with the cinema. The ones that are on my list are those that I have a personal attachment to. Yeah. I'd stand by it. I stand by it, too, and I kind of hate that we're even sharing this feedback only because we got a lot of positive responses, and this was really the only one that was remotely critical of our list. So it's a little bit of an aberration, at least in terms of the people we heard from. But I'm really hoping, Josh, that most people listening did hear what you just expressed come through in our picks, our personal passion for these movies. I certainly did not sit down and try to pick what I thought were simply the 10 greatest achievements in cinema ever. If I had done that, as we said on the show, 2001 would have to be at or near the top of the list. But for whatever reason, that movie doesn't have the personal connection that a movie like Double Indemnity does. And I tried to articulate that. So I was always walking that balance between great cinematic achievements, essential movies, but that I also consider insanely rewatchable. And entertaining. Yes, even a movie like Rashomon. Now, if I was really putting together my top 10 favorite movies ever, would Rashomon make that list? Maybe not. It might get edged out by something I love to watch over and over and over like again. Like Fletch. Like Fletch. Absolutely. <laughs> but Annie Hall would, Citizen Kane would, The Godfather 1 would, Double Indemnity. Basically, most of the movies, if not all the movies on my list, would also cross over into favorite territory. So I hope most people got that that we really did try to bring that personal attachment to our top 10. Do you think we sound defensive at all? It's probably only because we had such angst over over those lists. These we 10. really did wrestle with this so much, so that's our defense. And now, and now they're just worthless. I didn't realize how defensive I sounded <laughs> until you said that. And, of course, I sounded horribly, horribly defensive. I said we. We sound defensive. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition, my condition we get to this week's top five, inspired by our discussion of the new film Alps, which we didn't talk no, about at all during the that review. rambling review, we never got to the many bizarre dance scenes. Yeah, there scenes. are many bizarre dance scenes, as there are many bizarre dance scenes, or at least one really memorable one in his previous film, Dogtooth. So that is what inspired this week's top five 
dance scenes, but dance scenes from movies that are not musicals or movies about dance. Right. You just heard The Big Lebowski, the famous gutter ball sequence, really one of the most brilliant sequences in all of film, let's face it, but especially that includes dancing. Unfortunately, The Big Lebowski is in the film spotting pantheon. It's one of those films that's exempt from top five consideration because we love it so much. Also, in the pantheon, do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Great, great opening credit sequence. Rosie Perez dancing to fight the power, I think, had to get strong consideration for this list. But alas, it's in the pantheon, so not eligible. Josh, what movies did you consider for your top five? Well, first, this is also the Pulp Fiction Memorial list. Right? It is. So we are not including the Jackrabbit Slims dance scene. That's right. All right. Well, when I looked at these, what I wanted is, uh, because these were non-musicals, the sudden appearance of a dance scene can be jarring. Mm-hmm. So I wanted something that still manages to work within the context of the mood of the story in some way, even though it may seem to come out of nowhere to suddenly have dancing, it still works. It still can be revealing. Looking Mm -hmm. back on my list, I saw how, well, that was really revealing to have this dancing suddenly in this movie. One that works in this way actually was suggested on Twitter from Stephen Ball. He's at sball500. He mentioned Farmer Hoggett cheering up Babe the Pig in Babe. As soon as I heard that, I knew it had to be on my list. Come on, Peggy. Come on. Ah, come on. There's a boy. There's a good boy. Come on, then. Come on. If I had words to make a day for you. Babe is one of the most unlikely of endearing movies. It's the story of a pig raised by sheepdogs who learns how to herd sheep. And it uses real animals, uses animatronic ones. It sounds like a disaster, but actually it works so well that it's one of my most beloved children's films of all time. Big reason this works is because of James Cromwell, who plays Farmer Hoggett. He's this taciturn farmer, and it's such a great performance because if Cromwell doesn't buy into this kind of ridiculous premise and movie, we're not going to buy into it at all. So he's our key. And he does buy in to the point of doing a jig when Babe is ill, he needs to be fed, he won't eat, and so he starts doing this jig that cheers Babe up. The jig isn't much, I'll admit that, but the way it does open up the farmer's character and reveals how much he truly cares about all his animals, and Babe in particular, is a thrilling moment for me. I think that's a great point, that these picks don't necessarily have to reflect big intricate dance numbers they don't have to really show even a whole lot of dancing skill they just have to be memorable they have to be something that reveals something about the characters or about the larger story babe is a movie that i remember seeing when it came out i think i was working in a movie theater maybe part-time when it came out and i was constantly watching it but i don't know that i've ever sat down and watched oh, it. oh you've got to watch babe. i don't think i have there's a lot of that movie that's a total blank for me so you've inspired me to check that one out i'm sure the kids would love to see babe I know we've made this clear, but I just want to reiterate and try to avoid getting any emails from outraged people who don't understand how we overlook certain films. Not only are we overlooking musicals, but movies that are really about dancing, even if they're not musicals. We just felt like those shouldn't be eligible for this list. So for me, a film I love, like All That Jazz, has some great dance sequences. Not going to be here. Saturday Night Fever. I'm sorry, Josh. No Dirty Dancing. No Footloose. Oh, it's going to be a that, killer that for you. Heard. It's going to be a killer for you to leave those <laughs> off. Even worse for me, no breaking or breaking two electric boogaloo. <laughs> for me, it'd be step up. Step I actually up. really like step up. I know you do. Can't include that. Yeah, I don't hold that against you. <laughs> My number five is one I'm probably going to get held against me, probably by you and many listeners. I've said it before. 
on this show, this performance, and this movie, I think, are unduly maligned. It's the tango sequence from Sen of a Woman, starring Al Pacino. Oh, my goodness. Would you like to learn to tango, Donna? Right now? I'm offering you my services, free of charge. What do you say? Okay, yes, it seemed to launch a new, very big style of acting for Pacino. If anybody does an impression of Pacino now, that's what they do. They try to be Colonel Frank Slade from Sen of a Woman. But the bigness suits the character, and there's a lot of subtlety to the performance that people overlook often when they talk about Sen of a Woman. In this sequence, the tango occurs fairly early in the trip to New York City with Chris O'Donnell. They're at this very nice restaurant, and they end up getting Gabrielle Anwar this beautiful brunette to come sit at their table while she waits for her boyfriend and Colonel Slade convinces her to try the tango. She says that it's something she always wanted to do but doesn't know how to do it and he gets her out on the dance floor. I think the dance itself is just a joy to watch but I really appreciate it as well for how it does serve the character and the story. It shows that this guy who's been really gruff and really vulgar and very hard to get to know and care about up to this point, it shows he's a man of some refinement. You can't just write him off as this gruff military man. And it also puts us in the same position as Charlie, where you're expecting this to be a disaster. He's blind after all, so how good of a dancer can he be? And he's leading someone that doesn't know what she's doing. And then we get to be really pleasantly surprised and pleased when it goes so well. I also like the awkwardness at the beginning of the scene where you can tell she really doesn't want to get out there because she's afraid of how this might go and that she might embarrass herself and might even embarrass him in the process. And it occurred to me thinking about this scene that that's really what dancing is all about. It's about being willing to embarrass yourself, to let loose. And that's, of course, why I suck at dancing and try to avoid it at all costs, because I don't want to be out of control. And you're not going to get me out on the dance floor. I don't care what the reason is. <laughs> I believe that. See how I brought Son of a Woman all the way back to me? Yes, yes. I'm very I'm, good at that. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt here, because actually I am so much more familiar with people doing impressions of Pacino. See, that's too bad. It's it, it it too is. bad. It, it, it's a good I performance. Believe, I believe there might be some subtlety there. I don't really remember it all that well. So mm. it's just one of those iconic, for bad reasons, I guess, performances that gets lost in the impressions that follow it. My number four is Justin Timberlake dancing, but just barely in Southland. Dance. Really? Yes. All these things that I've done. You got it. Richard Kelly's Gonzo portrait of an alternative America came up last week, actually, in our discussion of Cosmopolis, because I found it to be similar in the way it amps up this country's nuttiness. Timberlake plays an Iraq war veteran, and he also is something of the movie's narrator, you could say. He does get a musical number. It's a satirical patriotic rendition and he lip syncs actually the killer song all these things that i've done what i like about this is the busby berkeley like chorus girls in the background all the while timberlake teases us with the possibility that he might dance <laughs> all we get though is this little shoulder shake and it's in keeping with the endless unpredictability of the entire movie timberlake is doing other things here though while he's not dancing he's communicating the exhaustion and the disillusionment that drives the movie even as all this amped up Americana nuttiness is going on around him. You wouldn't read in all the things I saw in Alps, but you'll read into Southland Tales. You really don't You'll think justify Southland, Southland Tales. Tales. You hate that movie? I don't hate it, but I don't care for it. <laughs> I'm not wild about it. I but that sequence it. is a lot of fun. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, it's really good. My number four dance scene. You know it's good because it was nominated for an MTV Movie Award for Best Dance Sequence. That's how, Josh. But it lost 
It lost oh. to Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. Shame. And my movie is Boogie Nights, dancing to Machine Gun, the Commodore's song. They're at the club. It's about a minute long, and it just perfectly encapsulates the flying high 70s part of the story. You see the entire cast of the movie in this one sequence, mostly moving in unison. They're part of a team, but very much with Dirk Diggler standing out at the star. At one point, he's dancing in a circle with them, surrounding him on their knees, almost like they're praising him like he's a god. But what's great about the scene is how it's shot. It's really beautiful how Paul Thomas Anderson approaches it because he makes it one long, unbroken take. Except unlike most of the other long takes in the film, there's no dramatic movement. It keeps it on a wide shot shows them dancing, and then just tracks in slowly to feature Dirk and Reed Rothschild when John C. Riley comes in, and it tracks back out. It's not about being flashy with the editing, trying to heighten the energy or the excitement. It's really about, I think, showcasing this happy collective of people at what's probably the happiest point in their lives, and it's not too long before this collective completely fractures, as we see when they get to the 80s. But that shot, framing it that way, showing it in one take, them together like that, really captures that camaraderie of that group. So Machine Gun from Boogie Nights is my number four. That's so strange because the MTV Movie Awards usually get things so right. True. You know? I don't know how they missed that one. I know. My number three is the Madison Strutt scene from Band of Outsiders. Since we're calling this the Pulp Fiction, Jackrabbit, Slim's Memorialist, we have to include the movie that QT named his production company after. This will be Jean-Luc Godard's 1964 love triangle slash crime drama starring his then-wife, Anna Karenna. The movie has an irresistible surface spontaneity that's perhaps best exemplified by the Madison Strutt scene in which Karenna and her male co-stars are in a cafe and then suddenly fall into this choreographed routine. Of course, to make sure we're not having too much fun, Godard himself breaks in with his voiceover. I think he calls it a digression, and he has to describe each character's feelings as the dance proceeds. So you put all this together, and it's kind of a definitive moment for me for the French New Wave. It has this surface style, but also this overt intellectualism all in one dance number. Film spotting confession. I watch Band Apart, Band of Outsiders, in preparation for my new Hollywood class at the University of Chicago's Graham School a few years ago. It was one of those things where I think it was right before the class, and it was just more for background as I was setting up some of what the new Hollywood was doing. And I crammed it in late at night, and I just didn't really fully appreciate that film. It's one I badly need to revisit. Yeah, it's worth another look. listening to Film Spotting, we're sharing our top five dance scenes, though these all come from movies that are not dance movies or from musicals. And my number three is Malcolm X from director Spike Lee. I can't use Do the Right Thing. It's in the Pantheon. I'm going to go with another Spike Lee choice. And I was doing a little bit of reading about this today because it's so interesting to watch that film, to watch Malcolm X, which is this epic story, justifiably so, and to see how he devotes so much time to this Lindy Hop dance sequence that happens at the Roseland Ballroom. And from what I read, it turns out that Malcolm X worked as a shoeshine boy at the Roseland Ballroom and became really enamored by this world. And what we see in this film is what he eventually rose to, which is one of those zoot suit wearing Lindy Hop dancers himself, who's also selling some reefer on the side to the people who come to the club. So the Lindy Hop was something Malcolm X was really into, and Spike Lee wanted to showcase that. And it's so intricate. He stages it like something out of a Michael Curtiz musical. It feels like Yankee Doodle Dandy or something, where he gives it this epic feel, but 
you also get the sense watching it why a character would be so drawn to this world. And it juxtaposes with his eventual fall and his rebirth as Malcolm X. But some of the fast editing, the lights, the movement, it shows you how seductive that lifestyle would be. It also sums up the friendship between Malcolm and Shorty, played by Spike Lee in the scene, and also how it's a place of their own. This is a place where I think in the sequence we only see one white person during the dancing. It's Sophia, a girl who eventually becomes his girlfriend. Otherwise, this is where the African-Americans come to dance and be themselves. And Spike Lee actually used for the choreography Frankie Manning, who was kind of one of the founding fathers of the Lindy Hop back in Harlem during that time. Obviously advanced in age. He just recently passed away, 2009, but used him and really relied on him to try to get some authenticity in that Lindy Hop sequence. I love that scene. I'm, I'm glad you chose it because it was going to be an honorable mention for me for sure. My number two is Rita Hayworth performing Put the Blame on Mame in Gilda. I already talked about this scene when I chose Hayworth as one of my top five screen redheads, so I kind of had to include it here where it's more appropriate, really. The movie is mostly about the love-hate relationship between Hayworth's Gilda, the wife of a casino owner, and Glenn Ford's Johnny Farrell, the man hired to keep an eye on her, despite the fact that they have this shared romantic past. One of the blows that Hayworth sends Ford's way, they're constantly at each other's throats throughout this movie. And one of her blows is to perform Put the Blame on Mame in front of a nightclub full of men as he's forced to watch. All else I'll say about this is that I'm astonished the sequence made it into the film as is in 1946. When they had the earthquake in San Francisco back in 1906. They said that old mother nature was up to her old tricks. I'm so glad you went with that pick from Gilda because it will hopefully stave off some hate mail I was anticipating by not having it on my list. So thank you, Josh, for that. My number two pick is a symbol of my individuality and my belief in personal freedom. It is the wild at heart dance sequence that I don't know what to call other than symbol of my individuality, because that is the best line that comes out of a sequence with some great lines. Sailor and Lulu, Laura Dern and Nicolas Cage in this David Lynch film, they decide to go out and have a big night of dancing. Cut to something you would never expect when two characters say, let's go dancing. Power mad. Just thrash metal, speed metal, <laughs> and you watch those guys out on the dance floor, aggressive, intense, just watching Nick Cage karate kick and punch and basically spaz out with Laura Dern. That in and of itself is great. But then Lynch takes it to another level when a punk guy starts kind of putting the moves on Lulu, and Sailor actually cues the band to stop, just hold up his hand, and they stop for him. Are you going to provide me with an opportunity to prove my love to my girl? Or are you going to save yourself some trouble? Step up like a gentleman and apologize to her. I love that sequence, and as it's just getting better and better, it caps off with Nicolas Cage looking at the band and mentioning that they've got a lot of the same energy he had talking about Elvis Presley. <laughs> and then they play Love Me by Elvis Presley with Nicolas Cage lip-syncing to it, professing his love to Lulu. Treat me like a I love Wild at Heart, and that sequence is one of the sequences that stands out to me in that film, so I had to make my list of dance scenes. See, that, that's one of those Nicolas Cage performances, and I know he's done, he can do really good work and still does, but you see that, and man, you just miss him, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. Of course I do. 
All right, number one, is John C. Riley doing a slow solo dance in the promotion? This hardly counts as a dance sequence. It's almost like a little twirl wow. that he does. You're number one. You're going with the film I completely overlooked when it came out. Still haven't caught up with oh, it. Oh, you've got to see it. I know Riley received a lot of attention for his Mr. Cellophane routine in Chicago, but I love even more his dancing here in this 2008 film. It was my movie of that year. In it, he and Sean William Scott play grocery store managers who square off in a heated competition for a coveted promotion in what was really a satire of the desperate job market of the time. Now, Riley's character, he's, he's a boob in a lot of ways. He's given to painfully inappropriate comments, but in that uniquely Riley way, he's also incredibly sympathetic. One of the moments that works this way is this late night scene. He's in the grocery store alone, cleaning up. He's listening to headphones, and he just does this soft little shuffle and twirl. I don't even really know how to describe it, and I couldn't find it anywhere on the web to refresh my memory, but it's just so bittersweet when I think of it, even still. Like Farmer Hoggett, it uses dance as a way to newly illuminate a character in a very vulnerable and moving way. I implore you, Adam, to see this movie. I am so implored, Josh. It will happen at some point. My number one dance scene is a sequence that I could see some people excluding on the basis that it's not really a conventional dance. It's more unison flying. And I'm thinking of Eva and Wally from the Pixar film. Wally. Nice. It's commonly referred to, I think, as the spacewalk sequence. But of course, all Eva and Wally can do is fly in unison, which they do for the same reason most of the people on our list dance as a pure expression of their joy. They're so moved by feelings of happiness. I guess we can apply those feelings to these robots here. Wally's saving the plant that Eva wants chiefly. And by their feelings for their other partner, that they have no choice almost but to move but to dance around the spacecraft. And certainly their movements take on a balletic quality with a really elegant Thomas Newman score accompanying it. I love, too, how it begins. That euphoria of the kiss, the electric charge that starts the dance when Eva moves in to thank Wally. It does show us how human these robots are, juxtaposed with how robotic the humans are. At one point, we see John and Mary, two of the main human characters in the film, they see Eva and Wally dancing out in space, and they end up touching each other's hands. They have this actual moment of intimacy and connection, watching them dance together. Hi. Hi. And it occurs to me that it kind of mirrors why we go to the movies, or at least why we go to romantic comedies and dramas, to bring out those kind of emotions. That's why we bring dates to those movies, to transfer those feelings from the screen and try to connect with those around us. So that sequence stood out for all those reasons. And then on top of it, how can you talk about dance sequences and not include one that ends with a character saying to the computer, define dancing? Yeah. And we get the definition of dancing. Dancing, a series of movements involving two partners where speed and rhythm match harmoniously with music. Of course, we didn't really need it because we saw it with our own eyes with Eva and Wally dancing out there in space so beautifully. That is such an exquisite sequence that it could almost be its own Pixar short in a good way. I mean, mm -hmm. it fits within the context of the film, but it's so perfectly realized. I almost wonder if they didn't have that as the genesis for the whole film. You know, these these two robots engaged in this sort of beautiful dance yeah. and built the movie around it because it's so gorgeous. What about honorable mentions for you, Josh? There were quite a lot because this was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. 
500 Days of Summer is probably the one that was most mentioned when I asked about this on Twitter and Facebook. I love me some Hall & Oates. Don't get me wrong. That is a fantastic sequence, and it works within the film, too. I really like how the relationship euphoria Joseph Gordon-Levitt feels there. The whole city becomes a part of that. Uh, A Life Less Ordinary with Ewan McGregor and Cameron Diaz. Hmm. There's a great scene in there where they're performing karaoke to Beyond the Sea, and it turns into a full-fledged dance number. Some Like It Hot, I considered, with Jack Lemmon doing the tango as Daphne while Tony Curtis gets to make out with Marilyn Monroe. Napoleon Dynamite, Napoleon's Sweet Moves. I had to include that as an honorable mention. Moonrise Kingdom is probably a little too young, but there's a really funny dance scene and cute and affecting. It works on a lot of different levels in that movie. And then two final ones here I considered Young Frankenstein, putting on the Ritz. I've had Young Frankenstein on my list a few that times you'd already. I knew consider it, but that you might leave it off for I that reason. I had to. I had to. And lastly, Fisher King, when the entire train station oh, begins ballroom dancing. Josh, what a great pick. I wanted to put I that. There weren't enough slots this week. I completely overlooked the Fisher King. That's a great sequence. That might have found its way onto my top five. Mm-hmm. Wow. You've humbled me there with that pick. Well, honorable mentions, the Fisher King. There you go. The sequence there <laughs> That's a great in New York pick, City Adam. in the subway. Thank you. The Fisher King. A few others that I have to mention. How about Buffalo Bill and Silence of the Lambs? Oh. In front of the mirror. <laughs> Talk oh. about creepy. Yes. We go from that to Dogtooth. We talked about Yorgos Lanthimos on the show. I'm thinking of the family showcase night. Mm-hmm. Also where, creepy. <laughs> where the kids put on their dance for their parents. How about the Breakfast Club? The Breakfast Club where they're in the library and Anthony Michael Hall turns the music on and we see them all doing their individual dances, but then sometimes they're dancing together along yeah, the bookcase. Are I you not a John Hughes guy? One. No, I am. That one just feels a little – when Hughes goes corny, sometimes I just can't get into it. That one feels a little corny, that sequence. I don't know. That's that's so ingrained Works as part you, of huh? my childhood. I can't, can't really look it at it in any rationally. objective way. No, <laughs> The Breakfast Club had to be considered. Mother, the Bong Joon-ho film from a few years ago, begins and ends with the mother – and a dance sequence. Risky business. Take those old yep. records off the shelf. Tom Cruise in his underwear. Airplane, the spoof of Saturday Night Fever had to be included. And Love is Strange, Sissy Spacek with Martin Sheen out in the forest oh. of Terrence Malick's Badlands is also one I considered. We could go on and on, but we'll just wait to get your feedback and have more choices like The Fisher King that make me feel like a total idiot. Those are our top five dance scenes from non-dance movies. Send us your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 206-203-2463, or find us on Twitter at filmspotting and at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Out wide this weekend, The Cold Light of Day, which is an action thriller that has a pretty amazing cast. Bruce Willis, Sigourney Weaver are in this movie along with the new Superman, Henry Cavill, or is it Cavill? I'm not sure. But nobody's talking about this movie, so this is the first I don't know I've actually of heard of it. Yeah, up until last week, I had no idea okay. what this film was. That's out in wide release. Also, The Words, this is a film starring Bradley Cooper and Jeremy Irons, one of my favorite actors. In limited release, Bachelorette, which is a new comedy. Samsara, a really interesting sounding documentary, is opening here in Chicago and Select Cities and Alps the new film from the director of Dogtooth that we split on a little bit, but I think both ultimately recommend. Yeah, definitely. Next week on the show, we don't really know what we're doing. We could talk about arbitrage. (laughs) Do you have to phrase it that way? We don't know what we're doing. We have no clue. (laughs) This is breaking news to everyone out there. But arbitrage, the new Richard Gere film is coming out. Oslo, August 31, which has gotten some really good Mm -hmm. reviews. And a lot of people are hyping up as one of those films that is going to appear on some lists maybe at the end of the year from... Norwegian director Joachim Trier. That's a film we really want to talk about, but it's 
only playing here in Chicago, it seems, for a week. Yeah. So by the time we review it, it might be ending its run. So we're throwing Oslo around, but we're also kicking around doing our end of summer roundup where we get to some of those multiplex movies that we skip. So you'll have to tune in next week or follow us on Twitter to find out what we're doing on our next show. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and special thanks to Tori Meltia and Shauna Coyne at WBEZ. This week's featured artist, Divine Fits. Learn more at divinefits.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.